And then we'll study the word together. Our Father, you have breathed out your word to us in the pages of Scripture. And even though you have ceased your work of revealing yourself in miracles in a miraculous way, like you did in the early church in the apostolic era, oh God, you still speak through the reading and preaching of your word. We love studying your word. We love opening up the scriptures. We love feasting upon Christ, our great Savior. We pray, O Lord, that you would show us the glory of the Son of God today, that we would leave here with our eyes and our minds and our thoughts utterly fixated upon Jesus, saying, what a Savior, what a priest, what a salvation I have in him. Oh, Father, may our worship be sweet as I preach and as we hear the word of God and then put it into practice into our lives. Help us to be faithful and diligent to be hearers and doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, well, he was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also he was the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, though through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Think with me for a couple of moments as we begin about the job of a detective. A detective. A detective investigates. A detective researches the details of a certain situation or tragedy or circumstance or or a situation that happened in order to draw accurate conclusions of, of what had taken place. A detective carefully does his work. He 
does his research, he considers the situation, considers all the facts and all the people and all the evidence and all the movements and all the interactions because he has to consider all the related information, every detail, even the smallest of detail, as being important. In fact, a detective has to consider every detail Even the most incidental detail, or maybe the most seemingly insignificant detail, or maybe even the person who might be the quietest one in the story. Because seemingly insignificant characters can often prove to be quite important in a matter. And that brings us, I think, to a fitting introduction to our man Melchizedek today. What may appear to be insignificant, not really in the spotlight in much of the Bible, he seems fairly insignificant, he he seems a little bit incidental, he seems a little bit to be a quiet character, actually in our text here turns out to be a hugely significant character in the plan of God in redemption. Here in Hebrews chapter 7, the Holy Spirit in his amazing wisdom gives us a glorious commentary on the man in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. In the purpose of this commentary in Hebrews chapter 7 is really quite simple. There's a lot of details that we'll look at today in the next couple of weeks. There's a lot of details, but here's the big point that you don't want to miss. The whole point of this is that Jesus' priesthood is better than that of Aaron's priesthood because Melchizedek's priesthood is better than Levi's. And if Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, then his priesthood is far better than Aaron's. That's what the author is doing in Hebrews chapter 7. And boys and girls, I want you to listen up for a second. Actually, even be involved with me for a moment because you know our church catechism and we have it there on the front pew. If you don't have the updated copy, you'll want to get one. Boys and girls, question 54. What are the offices of Christ? You can say it out loud. He is our prophet, priest, And king. Very good. Question 56. How is Jesus our priest? Because he died for our sins and he pleads with God for us. Okay, good. And then question 58 in our church catechism. Why do you need Christ as your priest? Because I am guilty. Very good. Because I am guilty. The Bible teaches that. We teach that in our catechism. The the boys and girls teach that. uh, They are taught that. We teach that in the context of our homes to our families, the importance of Jesus as the prophet and the priest and the king. Hebrews chapter 7 has been called by some commentators the focal point of Hebrews. It's almost like the preacher has finally come to the point where he says, okay, Let let, let me tell you the big point of what I have been working to thus far in my sermon. It is the detailed comparison of the priesthood of Jesus and the priesthood of the Levites. Now, let me just pause for a sec. 
and tell you the big picture of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. It's really one big unit. Hebrews 7 is about the credentials of Jesus. Does he really have the credentials to be the great high priest? Hebrews 8 is about the covenant of this great priest, the new covenant that he ratifies with his blood. And then you come to chapter 9, it's the comparison with Christ and the old priesthood. And then you come to chapter 10, and it's the climax of his one-time sacrifice on the cross. We're going we're gonna to see the credentials and the covenant and the comparison and the climax for probably many months to come as we gaze upon our priest together. But here in Hebrews 7, we see the credentials of Jesus becomes, because he comes from a, a greater priesthood. He comes from the greatest priesthood. He comes from the order, from the type, from the designation of the ultimate, ultimate priest of God's order in the Old Testament, and that is a man named Melchizedek. So what I want you to do this afternoon is I want you to follow with me as we trace the unfamiliar, but yet he is the unsurpassed character in the Old Testament. And I want, I want you to trace this with me in two ways. We're going to walk through these 10 verses pretty, pretty quickly and pretty swiftly, hopefully in an understandable way. And then I'm doing a little bit of a Puritan style. I'm going to give you a lot of application uses at the end of the message. So let's look at Melchizedek, the unfamiliar man Melchizedek in two ways. And I want you to see first the historical man. I want you to see the historical man, who he is and what he's all about. Second, I want you to see the honorable man that he is. Melchizedek is an honorable man. So we'll see the historical man and then the honorable man and then a lot of practical uses and applications at the end. As we begin Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, let's begin by gazing where our author leads us, and that is to see the historical man, Melchizedek. Now, look in your Bible at verse 1, because the author begins with this little phrase, for this Melchizedek. Remember, Hebrews is a sermon. I've been preaching it for months and months and months, but it was originally given in one setting as a sermon, and then it was guided by the Spirit of God and written down perfectly for us in the Scriptures. But go back to chapter 5, because when he says this Melchizedek, he actually wants you to remember what he just said in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of Christ's flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then it's like, hold on, pause, wait, wait, wait. You're not ready to go there yet. And you'll remember, because beginning in verse 11, he begins with a warning. It's a little bit of a chastisement. You've become dull of hearing. You, you become a little bit lazy in your spiritual life. And, let me, and then he traces that, and he gives him a warning to not fall away from the faith. Remember that, apostasy. We talked about that in chapter 6. 
Well, when we come to chapter 7, when he begins in verse 1, for this Melchizedek, he's going back to chapter 5, verse 10, where Christ has been designated high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So we should be encouraged. We're going to the deep end of the pool. This is the solid meat of the word that he thought they weren't ready for then, but after a warning, he says, okay, all right, now we're ready. Now we're ready for the solid meat. And hang on, it is solid meat. This is tough theology and good theology about the man Melchizedek. So let's look at the historical man. He only occurs two times in the Old Testament, and let's read all that there is to say about him. Go to Genesis 14. Genesis 14, and as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of the context. God has made his unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abraham and with his descendants. And then in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham and Lot... Uh, are recorded and spoken of. And then in chapter 14, there's a massive war. A coalition of kings are going to battle, and we read about how Abraham, how Abraham intervenes. Look at Genesis chapter 14, and let's begin in verse 17. Then after the return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer, And the kings who were with him, this is a big coalition of kings, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he, Melchizedek, was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then notice how Abraham or Abram responds at the end of verse 20. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And then you turn to the, probably the middle of your Old Testament, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is really the only other time where the man Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament. It is one of the Messianic Psalms written by David a thousand years before Jesus would be born. And Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind, speaking of Messiah, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's it. You've read all the Old Testament has to say about Melchizedek. That's it. That's all it has to say. And yet here we are, back to Hebrews chapter 7. God gives us a commentary on this man. God gives us a perfect, inspired commentary on Melchizedek and his importance. So let's look at the historical man. Number one, notice his office. His office, and we see this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. The man Melchizedek is the king of Salem, and he's the priest of the Most High God. What a unique office of king-priest. There's not many king-priests in the Bible. Melchizedek was a king 
priest. And we read in verse 1 that he was the king of Salem. That's an old, very, very archaic word for Jerusalem. So he is the king of Jerusalem, and he was the priest of the Most High God, and he lived in 2000 BC, the time of Abraham time of the patriarchs. That's his office. He was a king priest. And notice with me the name of the man. Notice the name of the man because the man occurs in Genesis 14 when Abraham returns from this like super cool battle. It's a God-given victory against the coalition of mighty kings and armies. And God gave Abraham the victory and he delivered Lot who was taken captive and all the spoils and a great triumph. And And then in Genesis 14, verse 18, Melchizedek comes and he brings wine and he brings bread for the occasion to celebrate. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then Abraham responds by giving him one-tenth of all the choicest of the spoils that they took from this massive battle. And so we see that in verse 1, Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and Melchizedek blessed him. Verse 2 of Hebrews 7. To Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, and he was, first of all, by the translation of his name, he was the king of righteousness. He was a good king. He was a righteous king. He was appointed by God, and he fulfilled his kingship righteously. Not only was he the righteous king, according to his own name, but he was the king of Salem, or the king of peace, as we read about it there in verse 2, ruling in Jerusalem. But then some people are really confused by verse 3. Look at verse 3. If we see his office, and then we see his name... Well, what about his family? Look at verse 3. Here's his family. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. And you think, who is this guy? He's got no dad and mom. No, no, no. That's not the point at all. The point is not that he didn't have a dad and mom. The point is he has no genealogy that's known. He has no parents that are known. He has no lineage that is recorded. In fact, shortly before the time of Jesus, There was a translation of the Bible in the Syriac language. Here's how they render this. Melchizedek, whose father and mother are not written in any of the genealogies. Meaning, at the time of Christ, people understood, verse 3, when Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, there is no record. He has no paperwork to prove that he's a priest. He can't prove his birth or his death or his genealogy because that doesn't exist. But that's pretty huge, isn't it? Because if you and I remember the priesthood in the book of Numbers, if you're going to be a priest, you better prove that you're from the lineage of Aaron. You need to prove it. You can't serve a pre- as a priest if you can't prove what family you're from. Melchizedek has no papers. He has no papers. 
He has no papers. So verses 1 to 3 then teach us that Melchizedek was a unique character. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, he didn't have a a beginning of days nor end end of life that's recorded for us, but he was made like the Son of God. He wasn't the Son of God, but he was made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest perpetually, not like the sons of Aaron. They died, and then their son became priest, and then he died, and his son became priest. This Melchizedek was a priest perpetually. I mention all of that to say this. Melchizedek is a real man. He's a historical man. He's an important man. He's a God-appointed man. He's a king. He's a priest. He's righteous. He's godly. He's peaceful. He's honored. But get this. He's only a picture of someone greater to come. He's He's a pattern. Or maybe the theological word, he's a type. He's a type. He's a foreshadowing. He's a pointer of someone like him, but much greater, who would come at a later point. More on that in a little bit. So that's the historical man, the historical man, Melchizedek. Genesis 14, Psalm 110. Well, let's, let's look, number two, then, if you're taking notes, let's, let's consider the honorable man. I want to show you the honorable man. He's not just like me and you. He's not just like a son of Aaron. He's not just an ordinary priest. He's an honorable man in a very, very unique way. Look at verse four. I love this. Verse four. Now observe how great this man was. What a summary. What a summary the author says about this man. Just, just observe how great this man was. The NIV has, just think how great he was. If Melchizedek is this great, how about the one that Melchizedek points to? Oh, he must be so much greater, so much more honorable. More on that in a little bit. Okay, what made Melchizedek so honorable? What made him so distinguished? Let me give you two reasons. And verses 4 to 10 are going to give us two reasons that made Melchizedek so honorable. Number one, he received tithes, or he received gifts from Abraham. And we see that in verse 4. Now observe how great the man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choice of spoils, right? Abraham goes to battle. He has this great victory that God gave him. Abraham's coming back with tons of plunder and tons of spoil. And Abraham gives a tenth of the best to Melchizedek. And then we read in verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi, all the priests who received the priest's office, well, they have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. It, it was almost like a sort of a salary, right? The Levites didn't have a, a plot of land. They had certain cities. And so God had designed it in the Old Testament time for the Israelites to give part of their belongings and salary to the priests as kind of a, a, an income for the priests, and the leadership. Well, we see here in verse 6 of our text, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is from Levi, he collected a tenth from 
Abraham, the greatness of Melchizedek, that Abraham, the man to whom God gave the covenant, Abraham, the man who went out and had this commanding, God-given victory, is now giving a tenth of the best to someone so honorable, someone so dignified, someone who is so majestic and royal named Melchizedek. And again in verse 8, it's the same thing as mentioned. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one, Melchizedek, receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. So why is Melchizedek better? Why is he honorable? Because he's the one who received the gifts and the tithes from Abraham. A second reason why Melchizedek is honorable is because he is the one who blessed Abraham. He's the one who blessed Abraham. And that's interesting because the argument here in verses 6 and 7 is that the greater will bless the the, the lesser. And Melchizedek is the one blessing Abraham. We see it in verse 6. Look at it there. The one whose genealogy is not traced from them who collected a tenth from Abraham. And and then he blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser, that is Abraham, is blessed by the greater, that is Melchizedek. So you and I might think this is all kind of weird. It's all part of an argument. In your mind, you ought to be thinking, if we're thinking rightly about the text, there's something unique and special about this Melchizedek. Uh, There may be a little bit of mystery to him. There may be some things that we don't have all the answers to about his life and lineage and genealogy. There might be some weird enigmas about this guy and all of his functions in life. But there's something honorable about him. And he's better than Abraham. And he, Melchizedek, is better than Abraham's descendants, including Levi. This Melchizedek is great. This Melchizedek is unsurpassed. This Melchizedek is supreme. And our our Savior Jesus comes from that priestly order of Melchizedek. Implication, he's better. He's better. The capstone of all of this, though, is in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Because in verses 9 and 10, and I know it can sound a little confusing, so I want to summarize it briefly, and then we'll move on. But in verse 9, and so to speak, through Abraham, meaning through Abraham's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, even Levi, who received the tithes, the priests did, but they actually paid the tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Remember how I told you this was the deep end of the pool? Okay, remember how I told you this is the solid theology, the meat of the word? Okay, we're in it right now. This is what theologians call uh, the doctrine of headship or the doctrine of solidarity. The doctrine of solidarity. Uh, For example, you and I might say, in a sense, or so to speak... We might say in Romans 5, in Adam, we all sinned. Well, you and I weren't born yet. You and I weren't here. But because you and I have descended from the lineage of Adam, because he sinned, we sinned in him even before we were around. 
That's the same argumentation that goes on right here. So also Abraham, who is the great-grandfather of Levi and the priesthood, we might say that all of the priests in Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. What's the point? Melchizedek is greater. He's greater than the priesthood of Aaron. He's greater than the priesthood of the Levites. As Levi was not yet born yet, but he came from the family of Abraham, we might say, well, then he, in a sense, paid the tithes to Melchizedek and his great-grandfather. We might say, we were in the family of Christ. When our Savior paid the penalty of divine justice and he did it all for us. And just like he has passed through the tomb and he's entered into the heavens, we have sat down in the heavenly places with Christ. But we're not there yet. But we're in Christ. And spiritually we are in our head who is there. It's a very theological argument. But there's a purpose The purpose of all of the technical details here is simply for you and me to say, well, the priesthood of old was pretty great, but Melchizedek was greater. And if Melchizedek was greater than the priests of old, and Jesus comes from the order of Melchizedek, guess what? Jesus is better than all the priests of old. That's the whole point of these 10 verses. So how does this, how does this fit into the theme of Hebrews where we currently are? Well, Hebrews is all about Jesus being better. He's better. He's better. He's better than everything. And what the author is going to do for the rest of chapter 7 is show the greater high priestly office that Jesus has above Aaron and all the priests of the Old Covenant. So, let's fast forward. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 22. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 22. What is the author doing? He's working hard to get to this conclusion that... Jesus is the guarantee, verse 22, of a better covenant. Not an old covenant where the priests would offer continual sacrifices, but a better covenant. Jesus is better. Look at verse 24 of Hebrews 7. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, he's an eternal priest. Verse 24 ends his priesthood. He holds it permanently. And verse 25 tells us that Jesus, as the greatest priest, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. And not only that, look at verse 27. The author wants us to know that Jesus is the great priest because he doesn't need daily like those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, Because our priest did it once for all when he offered up himself. 
And then we look at verse 28, how we read that Jesus isn't a weak priest, but he is the divine, the perfect son made perfect forever. And then look at chapter 8, verse 1, the main point of all of this is that we have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You see, when you and I look at chapter 7, verses 1 to 10 on Melchizedek, it's detailed. I get it. It's technical. I understand it. There's a lot of commentary here, and we're scratching our head thinking, I'm not sure if I understand all the details But the argumentation is not really for you and me to fixate on Melchizedek. It's for you and me to fixate on the great high priest who came from the order of Melchizedek, namely Jesus. This is why Isaac Watts wrote the hymn in 1709. Join all the glorious names. In one of the verses, he said, Jesus, my great high priest. He offered his blood and he died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. What makes that true and what makes that beautiful? It's that these truths in Hebrews are real. That Jesus really is the great high priest. So you understand the technicalities of it, but let's zoom out from just the 10 verses here and let's look at some practical applications and some uses, or maybe we could call it benefits. And if you're taking notes there, you got the two main points about Melchizedek, the historical and honorable man. I want to conclude our time. That doesn't mean I'm near finished. I have a lot left. But... I want to give you some benefits and practical application points of the theology of the priesthood of Jesus. And let's just begin first with the big picture. If you're taking notes, jot this little phrase down that Jesus is your high priest in the book of Hebrews. He is your high priest. This is astonishing. This is encouraging. This is comforting. And let me just survey what we've looked at thus far in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.17, Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest making propitiation for the sins of the people, meaning this priest is so significant that he extinguished divine wrath for you. In Hebrews 3 verse 1, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession, therefore we must consider him. In Hebrews 4, verse 14, Jesus is a great high priest who has passed all the way into the heavens to do what none of us could ever do. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, we read that Jesus is a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. In Hebrews 5, verse 5, we read that Jesus was appointed a high priest by God, a unique, a special, a sovereign, a God-given designation to be priest forever. 
In Hebrews 6 verse 20, we read that Jesus is our forerunner. He is our high priest who entered within the veil to accomplish a perfect redemption for us. Christian, let's just begin with this application. This is your high priest. And you could never have access to God except you come hanging onto his coattails. This is the great high priest. This is the one who has gone into the Holy of Holies. He is a merciful and a faithful and a reliable and a steadfast high priest. What a priest we have. Christian, what's the benefit of this? Marvel at this Christ. What should you do? Consider this priest. What should you do? Trust in this priest. Don't doubt him, but trust in him. What should you do? Love him. Love him. This is Jesus, your priest, in the book of Hebrews. Let me give you another application point, another benefit, another use of the priesthood of Christ. And just jot jot this down. Number two, he is the righteous king. He is the righteous king. Whatever Melchizedek was, Melchizedek was not perfect. But he was, according to his name, the king of righteousness. He, He was a good man. He was a good king. He was a king of righteousness and a king of order. But let me tell you about Jesus. First John, John chapter 2, verse 1. He is our advocate, our righteousness. Melchizedek's name is the king of righteousness, but Jesus, in his very essence, is the sum of perfect righteousness. Jesus is the embodiment of righteousness. He is the source of righteousness. And if you believe in him, 1 Corinthians 1.30 But by God's doing, we are in Christ. And he became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. What does that mean? That you have been given a righteousness that is God's very own righteousness that qualifies you for heaven because of the perfection of another. Jesus is the mediator of righteousness. He is our personal priest. He is our personal king. He is our personal righteousness. He is our bridge to God. That's why Jeremiah 23, 6, speaking of Jesus in the prophecy, says he is the Lord, our righteousness. Christian, this is how God looks at you every day. This is how he views you every day. This is your standing every day. This is your position every day. This divine righteousness robes you because you have this righteous king. No hope without it, but there's all hope clothed in this righteousness. Third, let me give you a third benefit of this glorious priesthood of Christ. Third, he is a a perfect and a saving priest. He is a perfect and a saving priest. I was so encouraged this week in reading from Thomas Watson on this very point. 
He was encouraging Christians to think about Jesus as your high priest in two ways. He said, he said, I want you to think about the satisfaction of Jesus, whereby he actually dealt with all of your sin. He dealt with your sin by his active obedience in obeying God in every way. You and I can't even do it once perfectly, but he did it actively, completely And then he did it with his passive obedience because he was made an atonement for our sin. All of our guilt was transferred to him. This is the satisfaction that Jesus, our perfect priest, made on the cross for us. But not only the satisfaction, Thomas Watson said, Christian, remember the intercession of Christ as well, that he secures you for glory. You might think that you're going to go home after church and make it home. You may or you may not. But Jesus has secured your entrance to heaven. It's a done deal. It's a guarantee. Thomas Watson called the perfect, saving, great high priest who is greater than Melchizedek. Thomas Watson said, this is the spring of all of our joy. This is the crown of all of our desires. This is our support in life and in death. Thomas Watson said, in any fear that you have in your life, comfort yourself by the atoning sacrifice of the blood of Christ. Whatever fear assails you, whatever doubt comes your way, whatever guilt is weighing you down, whatever sin that keeps coming into your life again, what must you do in those moments? You comfort yourself with the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Fourth, Let me give you a fourth use and benefit. Just a a couple more here. Number four. So what are the daily, what are the daily uses of the priesthood of Christ? How does it affect me tonight when I go to bed and tomorrow when I get ready for work and Tuesday and Wednesday? What are the daily uses? Let me give you two. If Jesus gave himself as a sin offering for us, we should give ourselves as a thank offering to him. Thank him every day. Thank your great high priest. It actually is the cure for all grumbling and all discontentment. Gratitude, thankfulness, That we have a great high priest who is better than any priest of old. He has made a perfect sacrifice. He has made a full atonement. He said to Telestai, we have a priest that gave himself for us. Let's give ourselves to him in thanks. Another daily use comes from J.C. Ryle. He said, do this as you're going about your directions each day. What do you mean? Look back. Look back to the sin atoning work on the cross. Look back. Look back and see your priest. Look back and see your king. Look back and see the prophet. Look back and see your God hanging on the cross for you. He said, second, look, look upward. Look upward. 
and see the interceding great high priest at the right hand of God. Even when you are too weak to pray, even in the moment of your sinning, Jesus is still praying you into glory. And then look back, look up, and then third, look forward. Look forward to the day of the promised return of our great high priest. He's going to come back, and Hebrews chapter 9 is going to teach that, that Jesus will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to all who eagerly wait for him. What are the daily uses? Give thanks to him, and in the different directions of life, gaze upon Christ. Yeah, but number five, here's another benefit, another use. You're weak. I'm weak. You struggle. So do I. There are days when you and I doubt this. There are days when you and I wonder and we are confused and we forget. What do we do? What do we do? Sam Storms has some really great helps here. If you're weary and you feel worn out, you know what you do? You draw near to God through Christ for strength to endure as you stand in his strength. If you feel shame-filled and you feel downtrodden and the guilt of your sin and the guilt of your past is just weighing you down, draw near to God through Jesus Christ and remember that he cleanses of all guilt and shame. If you're here today and you're brokenhearted, maybe your dreams and your plans and your desires just seem to never come to fruition, you need to draw near to God through Jesus and he can satisfy your heart's greatest desire. Maybe somebody's here today and you, you've like lost all hope. You've lost all hope. You need to draw near to God through Jesus so that he can restore your hope in his promises. Maybe you're broken and weak in your body. You feel frail. You feel weak physically. Draw near to God through Jesus Christ so that he might mercifully touch your physical frame with his merciful power and his amazing grace to give you strength. To those who are here and you're filled with anxiety and you're filled with worry and you're filled with with fear about things that you just can't control. Draw near to God through Jesus Christ so that he may impart his peace that surpasses all understanding to you. Maybe you're here today and you've been severely wounded or abused. Maybe by a parent or spouse or someone you thought was your friend. You need to draw near to God through Jesus Christ to find the friend of sinners who can be trusted and he can love you you perfectly as the friend of sinners. To any man or woman or young or old who has believed the lie that nothing will ever change. And maybe it's the, one of the greatest things 
that is exponentially increasing in our nation, and that is suicide. Some people think life isn't worth living anymore. It's not worth living anymore. What do you need to do? Draw near to God through Jesus Christ. He can make all things new. Or any other pain or problem that I haven't mentioned. (laughs) Any other affliction, any other infirmity, any other grief, any other sorrow. What's the solution? We draw near to the throne of grace. We come to our merciful great high priest. And he is ready and able to help. Why can we say all that? Why why is all of that true? It's because of Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 is the credential. Hebrews 7 is the papers saying, let's just prove how Jesus is better than all the priests of old. It's like you can almost hear the original Jewish audience saying, prove it. We have relatives who are from the tribe of Levi, and they're the priests. What makes you say Jesus is better? Hebrews 7 says, let me tell you that Jesus comes from the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was better than Abraham, and Abraham was the great-grandfather of Levi and all the priests, so Melchizedek is greater. And Jesus is our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So one more, number six, what's another use? Something that I think a lot about. We ought to reverentially adore this priest. I heard it again recently. Jesus is not anybody's homeboy. He's not somebody that you're flippant with. He's not somebody that we just sort of pick and choose and come to him on our terms. It doesn't work that way. We, we ought to respond with reverential adoration. That, that means that we ought to honor and we ought to respect Christ. This is what God the Father wants. John 5, 23, the Father wants all to honor the Son even as they honor the Father. We ought to adore The Lord Jesus is our priest by resting our weary souls in him. I have on my prayer days away, I have counsels through history from other ministers of the gospel that have given counsel to other pastors. And I read that and often they'll say, whatever you read in a book, read double in the Bible. Whatever you read in any book that can be out there on the shelf, great benefit from it, but read twice as much in the scriptures. To rest in Christ, because I need that, because you need that. We need to rest our weary souls in Christ, and that's what the scriptures lead us to. Third, another reverential adoration, a way that we can respond to Christ reverentially is we ought to approach the throne of grace and cling to Christ. Hold on to him. Hold on to him tightly. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but times are getting tough and they're going to get tougher. 
They're going to get tougher for Christians, probably for many of you at work. Some of us in the land in which we live, for those who are engaged in street evangelism, and for all who desire to live godly, there's going to be difficulty and persecution and opposition. So what do we do? We approach the throne of grace and we hold tighter to Christ. And what do we do finally in our reverential adoration of Christ? We ought to esteem His excellency, the glory of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the honor of Christ, the kingship of Christ. We esteem the one who has the power and the authority to go into the Holy of Holies for us. For us. An amazing priest we have. An amazing great high priest. Christian, hear this. You believe on Christ. You're trusting in him. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 7 make the theological point that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, who was greater than Abraham and Levi and all the priests of old. Look to him. Trust in him. Boys and girls, boys and girls, nothing more important could ever be said to you than this. You have no hope for your soul, but this great high priest. He's the one who throws the door to heaven wide open, and he says to you, enter in. Enter in the narrow gate. But the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter in it. But the way is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Enter through that gate. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Christian, be encouraged by this. William Bridge was a Puritan writing on this, on the priesthood of Christ, greater than Melchizedek. He said, quote, the priestly office of Christ is the great storehouse, you hear that? The great storehouse of all the grace and comfort which we have this side of heaven. Did you hear that? What's the great storehouse that we have of all the comfort and all the grace this side of heaven? What is it? It is the priestly office of Christ that he made atonement for our souls. What a great priesthood. It really is the greatest priesthood ever. May we worship and honor and love our Savior appropriately because he is of the greatest priesthood and deserves all of our honor. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have given us Hebrews and even the beginning of this great section to teach us that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, which is the greatest priestly order. Oh, how we worship and we consider and we marvel at and we gaze upon the beauty and the excellency and the majesty of Jesus Christ, our priest and our Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name.